Welcome everyone to episode 26 of Curseland, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I am your host and sole proprietor of Curseland, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. An agonizing four-day wait came to a tragic end early Saturday morning when rescue workers failed to find any survivors in an underground mine after a huge explosion earlier this week. The news at the Upper Big Branch Mine about 30 miles south of Charleston brought the death toll to 29 in the country's worst mine disaster in four decades. From the New York Times, a story entitled, No Survivors Found, After West Virginia Mine Disaster. And this story was written in 2010. We did not receive the miracle we were praying for, said Governor Joe Manchin III, looking somber, his voice barely audible. This journey has ended and now the healing will start. The announcement closed a grim Appalachian ritual and the third major mining disaster in the state in the past four years. Grim-faced and exhausted, rescue workers emerged from the mine around midnight after spending much of the evening wending their way through a labyrinth of cross passageways more than a thousand feet underground. It took about three hours before the rescue team could get to all the men, mining officials said. The names of the dead were not released. Twenty-eight of the dead were Massey employees and one was a contract worker, a company spokesperson said. After Monday's explosion left 25 dead and four missing, state and federal officials tried to tamp down expectations, saying it was highly unlikely that any of the missing miners would be found alive. But a sliver of hope remained until early Saturday morning, when state officials said that the rescue mission was finally shifting to a recovery mission. Crews will soon begin the bleak task of trying to recover all 22 bodies still inside the mine. Seven other bodies were recovered after the blast Monday, and two other miners were injured. Rescue efforts had been an agonizing 100-hour exercise in frustration as the teams repeatedly inched their way through tangled debris and fallen rock, only to have to withdraw because of explosively high levels of methane and carbon dioxide. Above ground, the miners' families waited for word. Passing much of the week sequestered from the news media, they huddled together in an open-air warehouse on the mine's sprawling property, eating pizza, whispering consolations to each other, and sometimes praying. While rescue efforts continued, company and state officials had been reluctant to release the names of the dead and missing, a move that angered many families longing for closure. The death toll caused by Monday's explosion was the highest in an American mine since a 1970 explosion that killed 38 at Finley Coal Company in Hyden, Kentucky. The blast at Upper Big Branch comes four years after a pair of other West Virginia mine disasters. An explosion that killed 12 miners at the Sago Mine and a fire that killed two at the Aracoma Alma Coal Mine. We remained hopeful the four missing miners would be found alive, Don Blankenship, the chief executive of Massey Energy, the mine's operator, said in a statement, I personally met with many of the families throughout the week and share their grief at this very painful time. In 2008, the Aracoma Coal Company, a subsidiary of Massey, 
agreed to pay $4.2 million in criminal fines and civil penalties and to plead guilty to several safety violations related to that fire. This week's disaster came as a particular surprise because last year there were only 34 mining deaths, a record low. Rescue workers described the blast as overwhelming, like nothing they had ever witnessed. Rail lines were twisted like pretzels, they said. Mining machines were blown to pieces. The conditions underground were such a mess after the explosion that it was only late Friday that rescuers realized they had walked past the bodies of the four missing miners on the first day without seeing, a federal mine safety official said. This week's blast comes after a year in which the Upper Big Branch Mine had repeated problems with methane buildups. Since April 2009, federal regulators have cited the mine eight times for substantial violations relating to the mine's methane control plans, according to records. In two instances, the regulators found the mine operator was calibrating methane monitors every three months, even though it's supposed to be done every 31 days. The delays in attending to the monitors meant they could not properly detect the gas, a risk inspectors said could lead to severe injuries or prove fatal. On April 30, 2009, federal regulators found that the mine had failed to follow methane-related safety precautions. Regulators stopped work in a section of the mine until the ventilation was corrected. Kevin Strickland of the Federal Mine Safety and Health Administration said he planned an aggressive investigation of the disaster. I can tell you this, no stone will be left unturned, he said. President Obama earlier on Friday expressed his condolences to the families of those killed or injured in the mine explosion. In remarks in the Rose Garden, he said, it's clear that more needs to be done about mine safety, and he asked for a full report on what went wrong. He said he had spoken on Wednesday to members of the Davis family, who had lost three relatives in the explosion, Timothy Davis Sr. and his two nephews. Corey Davis, and Josh Knapper. Mining has a long and proud history in West Virginia, Mr. Obama said. It is a profession that's not without risks and danger, and the workers and their families know this, but the government and their employer know that they owe it to these employees' families to do everything possible to ensure their safety. None of the chambers had been deployed, said Governor Manchin during the somber press conference Saturday morning referring to the underground rescue chambers where everyone hoped the four missing miners might be. None of our miners suffered. Church officials said that donations for the families of the dead miners were being accepted at the Montcolm Mining Disaster Fund, which was being run by the West Virginia Council of Churches. Governor Manchin added that he had asked the White House for a national moment of silence on Monday at 3.30. something a little more lighthearted. Mashed potato mystery baffles Mississippi community. And this is from the New York Daily News.com, a story by Nelson Oliveira. Someone mysteriously dropped off bowls of mashed potatoes outside the homes of numerous residents in Jackson, Mississippi. Neighbors in a historic neighborhood in Jackson were scratching their heads this week as they sidestepped bowls of mashed potatoes that mysteriously turned up outside numerous homes. The potatoes, left in styrofoam bowls, appeared around Bellhaven, one of the city's oldest communities and the home of Bellhaven University. 
Residents told local media they have found mashed potatoes on their doorsteps and mailboxes, and even on top of their cars. I got up and was headed to work at 7 o'clock, and there was just a styrofoam bowl of mashed potatoes on the doorstep right there, Bellhaven resident Sebastian Burnegard told KFVS on Tuesday. Other residents weren't as certain about what was in the bowls. I've seen a lot of weird things since moving to Jackson, but walking out to my car this morning to find a bowl of what I think was potato salad on my windshield definitely ranks in the top five, Jordan Lewis wrote on Facebook. One of the theories shared on social media is that this is a prank by students at Bellhaven University because many alumni live in the area. Other residents seem concerned that someone might be trying to poison pets in the community. Regardless of the motive, Neighbors say it is just another odd story from Bellhaven, and they don't see the need to call in law enforcement. This neighborhood does a lot of quirky things, Lewis told KFVS. We decorate road signs, we put Christmas trees in our potholes, so it's not surprising at all. That's why I love this neighborhood, because they do so many strange things, but it's definitely one of the weirdest things I've seen since living in Jackson, he said. There's a new addition to the family tree, an extinct species of human that's been found in the Philippines. It's known as Homo luzonensis after the site of its discovery on the country's largest island, Luzon. Its physical features are a mixture of those found in very ancient human ancestors and in more recent people. From the BBC.com, a story by Paul Rincon. New Human Species found in the Philippines. That could mean primitive human relatives left Africa and made it all the way to Southeast Asia, not something previously thought possible. The find shows that human evolution in the region may have been a highly complicated affair, with three or more human species in the region at around the time our ancestors arrived. One of these species was the diminutive hobbit, Homo floresiensis, which survived on the Indonesian island of Flores until 50,000 years ago. Professor Chris Stringer from London's Natural History Museum commented, After the remarkable finds of the diminutive Homo floresiensis were published in 2004, I said that the experiment in human evolution conducted on Flores could have been repeated on many of the other islands in the region. That speculation has seemingly been confirmed on the island of Luzon, nearly 3,000 kilometers away. The new specimens from the Kalau Cave in the north of Luzon are described in the journal Nature. They've been dated to between 67,000 years and 50,000 years ago. They consist of 13 remains, teeth, hand and foot bones, as well as part of a femur that belong to at least three adult and juvenile individuals. They've been recovered in excavations at the cave since 2007. Homo luzonesis has some physical similarities to recent humans, but in other features hark back to the Australopithecines, upright walking ape-like creatures that lived in Africa between two and four million years ago, as well as very early members of the genus Homo. The finger and toe bones are curved, suggesting climbing was still an important activity for this species. This also seems to have been the case for some Australopithecines. 
If Australopithecine-like species were able to reach Southeast Asia, it would change the way our ideas about who and our human family tree left Africa first. Homo erectus has long thought to have been the first member of our direct line to leave the African homeland around 1.9 million years ago. And given that Luzon was only ever accessible by sea, the find raises questions about how pre-human species might have reached the island. In addition to Homo luzonesis, the island in Southeast Asia also appears to have been home to another human species called the Denisovans, who appear to have interbred with early modern humans when they arrived in the region. This evidence comes from analysis of DNA, as no known Denisovan fossils have been found in the region. The Indonesian island of Flores was home to a species called Homo floresiensis, nicknamed the Hobbits, because of their small stature. They're thought to have survived there from at least 100,000 years ago until 50,000 years ago, potentially overlapping with the arrival of modern humans. Interestingly, scientists have also argued that Homo floresiensis shows physical features that are reminiscent of those found in Australopithecines, but other researchers have argued that the hobbits were descended from Homo erectus, but that some of their anatomy reverted to a more primitive state. In an article published in Nature, Matthew Tocheri from Lakehead University in Canada, who was not involved with the research, commented, Explaining the many similarities that H. floresiensis and H. luzonensis share with early Homo species and Australopiths as independently acquired reversals to a more ancestral-like hominin anatomy, owing to evolution in isolated island settings, seems like a stretch of a coincidence too far. Here's another story from favorite of this show, Appalachian Magazine. Why many of our Appalachian ancestors believed in fairies. While modern mothers and children alike often think of Tinkerbell when they hear of fairies, Appalachian mothers from a century or more ago imagined something far more sinister. Highly superstitious, our ancestors' belief system often married fundamental Christian doctrine with old-world paganism, and the results were a fascinating blend of bizarre and often outrageous ideas to explain the dark forests beyond their cabins. Even though the belief in fairies can be traced back well before his time, England's King James declared fairies to be illusory spirits that prophesied to, consorted with, and transported the individuals they served. In medieval times, a witch or a sorcerer who had a compact with a familiar spirit might receive these services. In essence, they were the entities witches and wizards would go to when their own powers fell short. A popular Christian tenet for many years held that fairies were a class of demonic angels who had been cast out of heaven when Satan rebelled against God. Given their supposed demonic origins, fairies were the subject of great fear among the highlanders of Appalachia and would often be blamed for bizarre happenings which could not be explained naturally. Fascinatingly, it was not just Appalachia's European settlers who believed in the existence of fairies. As they began to mingle with Native Americans, they discovered that many of their beliefs regarding fairies were shared by the land's original inhabitants 
especially the Cherokee. While the Bible speaks about ancient giants who roamed the earth during the days of Noah, Native American legends speak of a race of tiny people who lived in wooded and rocky areas. Often described as hairy-faced dwarfs in stories, petroglyph illustrations show them with horns on their head and traveling in groups of five to seven per canoe. Native legends often talk of the tiny people playing pranks on individuals, such as singing and then hiding when an inquisitive person searches for the music. It was often believed by Native Americans that the little people loved children and would take them away from bad or abusive parents, or if the child was without parents and left in the woods to fend for themselves. Other legends say that if the tiny people were ever spotted by an adult human, they would beg the person who observed them not to tell anyone, and would reward those who kept their word by helping them and their family out in times of need. From tribe to tribe, there were variations of what the tiny people's mannerisms were like, and whether they were seen as being good or evil varied from local tribe to tribe. One of the more widely held beliefs maintained that the tiny people created distractions in order to cause mischief. They were believed to be gods by some. One North American native tribe believed that the tiny people lived in nearby caves. The caves were never entered for fear of disturbing the tiny people. Among our Scots-Irish ancestors, the belief in fairies was even more rampant. Fairy trees, often small, thorny trees, were considered dangerous to chop down as they were thought to be the homes of fairies. One such tree was left alone in Scotland, though it prevented a road being widened for 70 years. The Highlanders believed fairies were often mischievous and to be feared. No one dared to set foot in the mill or kiln at night, as it was known that the fairies brought their corn to be milled after dark. So long as the locals believed this, the miller could sleep secure in the knowledge that his stores were not being robbed. John Fraser, the miller of White Hill, claimed to have hidden and watched the fairies trying unsuccessfully to work the mill. He said he decided to come out of hiding and help them, upon which one of the fairy women gave him a galpin, a double handful of meal, and told him to put it in his empty gurnal store, saying that the store would remain full for a long time, no matter how much he took out. It is also believed that to know the name of a particular fairy could summon it to you and force it to do your bidding. Before the advent of modern medicine, many physiological conditions were untreatable, and when children were born with abnormalities, it was common to blame the fairies. Of all the superstitions held by our ancient ancestors, it's hard to imagine any which has claimed the number of innocent lives as much as the belief in changelings. A changeling was believed to have been a creature the fairies had left in place for a human child they had stolen. Though the child's features and physical appearance may have been unchanged, it was commonly believed that the child itself had been taken and living inside the shell of what was once the child was a fraudulent counterfeit. A child was especially thought to have become a changeling when he or she suddenly and without any explanation became sick or developed an unexplained disease, disorder, or developmental disability. It would be impossible to detail the countless number of changeling stories said to have occurred over the centuries, but it is believed that thousands of children may have died due to their parents mistaking them to have been a changeling. 
L. Ashleyman, Professor Emeritus of German at the University of Pittsburgh, is an American folklorist and generally considered to be a leading expert on folklore and fairy tales. According to Aslaman's work, in 1580, near Breslau, a new mother was working to harvest a large crop of hay one summer. The woman, who had barely had a week to recover from the birth of her child, took the baby and placed it on a small clump of grass and left it alone while she helped with the haymaking. After she had worked a long time, she returned to the newborn infant, and upon simply looking at it, she began to cry and scream aloud. The child was not hers, but had become a changeling. As the story goes, the baby sucked the milk from her so greedily and howled in such an inhuman manner that it was nothing like the child she knew. She took the baby home, and after several days of the child not acting like the babe she knew, she told her story to the nobleman who told her, If you think that this is not your child, then do this one thing. Take it out to the meadow where you left your previous child, and beat it hard with a switch. Then you will witness a miracle. As the story concludes, the woman followed the nobleman's advice, and went out and beat the child with a switch until it began screaming very loudly. Then the devil brought back her stolen child, saying, There, you have it. And with that, he took his own child away. More violent levels included attempting to try to burn the changeling in the oven, as well as hitting or whipping the changeling, all of which would immediately summon the changeling's parents, or the devil who would then be ready to trade back the human baby for the changeling. As difficult as this belief in changelings may be to believe in modern society, these were not some fringe notions held by a wily few a handful of centuries ago, but shared and even propagated by many of the leading minds of the hour. William R. Albury, Ph.D., is adjunct professor of history at the School of Humanities at the University of New England, Armadale, Australia, and he writes... The idea of the changeling draws on the ancient folk belief that an abnormal child was not the real child of its putative parents, but a spirit, such as an elf, fairy, or goblin, left in the real child's stead. Having been abducted from the parents, the true child was raised amongst its supernatural abductors, while the otherworldly child remained. Consistent with the more severe manifestations of autism, most changelings lacked typical social behavior. Refraining from talk or laughter, they would cry incessantly, remain silent, or seem to find enjoyment at someone else's distress. On rare occasions, a changeling might unexpectedly utter a word or two, giving the impression that the creature obstinately refused to speak despite an ability to do so. Suspected changelings were thrown into water, beaten severely, left unfed in fields or forests, or burned in hot stoves, all in hopes of the parents getting their original baby back. However, Pittsburgh's Professor Asleman, who is one of the world's leading authorities on European superstitions, postulates that these ghastly actions may not have been simply the unwitting work of innocent and ignorant parents, but rather an acceptable excuse for legal and socially acceptable infanticide. There is ample evidence that these legendary accounts do not misrepresent or exaggerate the actual abuse of suspected changelings. A peasant family's very subsistence frequently depended upon the productive labor of each member, 
and it was enormously difficult to provide for a person who was a permanent drain on the family's scarce resources. The fact that the changeling's ravenous appetite is so frequently mentioned indicates that the parents of these unfortunate children saw in their continuing existence a threat to the sustenance of the entire family. Changeling tales support other historical evidence in suggesting that infanticide was not infrequently the solution selected, writes Asleman. When I was 26, my friend and I decided we were going to sail around the world. Ambitious? Yes. Stupid? Yes. As I type this, I am 3.5 years into this journey with an estimated two weeks until I reach home base. I'm not sure if I will make it. I'll sum up my life story thus far in three short sentences. I was lucky to have a nice family growing up and we lived by the water and loved to sail. After college, I realized I wasn't very happy with myself and needed direction. I thought I'd find answers on the open water, or something like that, so me and my best friend set sail. Samuel and I saved up a lot of money ever since we were teenagers. We bought a yacht together, aka a tattered 35-foot boat that was built in the 1960s with a nice motor and huge sails. It took some work to get it going again, but it was worth every penny. We had plenty of food, clean water, water purifiers, medicine, flare guns, solar generators, batteries, a pro GPS, all the essentials. We also have a nice satellite thingy that Sam set up so we can have Wi-Fi on board. It only works about 10% of the time, truth be told, but if you're reading this, it means it's done its job. The past 3.5 years have been, uh, interesting. Some weird shit has happened, but I don't have time to type it all out now. The only thing of importance now is surviving the situation I'm in and creating this written record of what happened. It started a couple of hours ago. Like I said, I'm about two weeks away from California, where we started our journey, going north away from Mexico in the Pacific Ocean. A few hours ago, Sam and I were sitting out on the boat's deck sipping some champagne, celebrating the fact that we were in the home stretch. The stars, my god, the stars were beautiful. You really can't get a better view of them than from the middle of the ocean. We were quietly admiring them. We had talked so much in the past three years, but the silent moments we shared were the ones I remembered most. Like that moment we were in then silently watching the stars at night and sipping some bubbly. Or the first morning we set sail. We didn't talk for almost two hours as we watched the sunrise. As it first appeared as a red blob climbing over the ocean's end, Sam was strumming Here Comes the Sun on his guitar. The salty wind was hitting our face and I thought, this is it. No looking back. This is the beginning of this whole journey. I thought about these moments and more like them, but I was broken from my days as I noticed Sam had stood up from his seat rather quickly and was staring off into the horizon. What is it? I asked. I thought I saw a flare. I looked out in the same direction he was and waited. 
A couple seconds passed, then a skinny, barely visible streak of red appeared. It was a couple miles away, maybe more. Sam turned to me. Flare? I nodded. Flare. Let's go. Now. Got it. I ran to the controls and started up the engine. We turned the vessel sharply and darted over in the direction it came from. We were traveling fast, for sure, but not at an unsafe speed. Our boat rocked up and down and side to side as we traversed through the waves. Sam and I probably sailed for ten minutes or so without seeing any more flares and no sign of any other vessel in front of us. Should we just keep going, Sam asked. Just a little longer, I think. So we did, but this is where things took a turn. No, not a turn. A turn implies the driver is still on the road. No, things didn't take a turn. Things drove off a fucking cliff. Whoa, slow down, Sam yelled at me. I slowed down significantly. What is it? Um, I see something. Not sure yet. I can't make it out. We continued at a slow, steady speed, keeping an eye out. I could see what he saw soon after he pointed it out, but I couldn't make it out. A buoy, maybe? Some scrap from a ship? We approached closer. Wait, no, it's too skinny. Except on the top. Oh, it's a, a sign? It's a sign. It's a... no. It's a stop sign? Sam muttered. It was about ten feet higher than the water's surface. It stood perfectly still as the waves crashed around it. The octagon was red and weathered and covered with rust, but the white letters reading STOP in the middle were unmistakable. How is it not moving? It was almost as if its pole was stuck in the ocean's floor, hundreds of feet below us. What the hell? I said. I don't know, man. Let's turn around. I agreed because I didn't like whatever vibe a fucking stop sign in the middle of the ocean was given off. We turned, passed by the sign once more, and sailed away. We were silent again, but not like before when we were sipping champagne. We weren't thoughtful, reflecting, or anything like that. We were scared. I could tell he was. But why? It's just a stop sign, right? Nothing spooky about that. Just weird. Just odd. Out of place. We continued on for a while, not speaking, until I made a remark about the water. Wow, the water has really calmed down. These waves are baby waves. Seriously, Sam confirmed. This is the quietest the water's been in months. Maybe years. He was right. But a chill crept up my neck when I realized how quiet it really was. It wasn't just quiet. It was growing quieter by the second. Twenty minutes before, the waves were roaring and crashing into our boat, but they weakened to small splashes. Then that had diminished into the faintest sounds of water moving, like a small creek. But then, then it was silent. There were no ocean sounds at all. If any of you have been out on the ocean in the middle of the night, you know how dark the water is. It's basically black. The only definition of the waves comes from the moonlight, and you can faintly make out where the waves break and crash. Well, as the sound diminished, so did the waves. The choppy black water had grown stiller and stiller and stiller, and now it was still. It was black, 
it was flat. It looked like there was no ocean. There was no reflection from the moon or stars anymore. There was nothing beneath our boat but darkness. Sam turned to me. He didn't have words, but his petrified expression confirmed that I wasn't going crazy. We both moved towards the side of the boat's deck and looked down, where the water should be. Looking straight down was an odd experience. You know when you look up in the sky and your eyes go to the furthest possible focal point they can? Well, this seemed to go beyond that point. There was nothing but darkness, and I couldn't find an end to it. Sam grabbed my arm. What is this? What's happening? I'm not... I turned to him, but then I noticed something far worse. He was no longer backlit by the moon. There were no stars behind his darkened figure. The only light came from our boat's lamps. There were no stars. There was no moon. There was no water. There was only us and our vessel. There was nothing beneath us and nothing above us. The ship no longer rocked back and forth with the water's current. It was perfectly still, absolutely motionless. We floated somewhere in space and time, I know that much, but I had lost all direction. I felt like I was losing my sanity too. I had an odd out-of-body experience then. It was like I was a mile away from where I stood. I could see the small light emitting from the boat far off in the distance, and surrounding us was nothing but darkness. It looked like we were floating somewhere in outer space, a part of the universe void of any stars or light. I came back from that vision and gained some composure. What does the GPS say? I asked. Sam ran over to the navigation system's display. It says... His eyes were locked on the screen. He didn't finish his sentence. What? What does it say? It says... He paused again without looking up at me. It doesn't know where we are. That's impossible. You said that GPS works everywhere. Everywhere on Earth? Yeah. That gave me pause. What are you saying? He still looked at the screen. He ignored my question and asked one of his own. I'll never forget his words. Does it feel like we're falling to you? No, I started to say. But after he asked that, it did, kind of. Before, it felt like we were floating on a stagnant water in complete darkness. But now, I felt that drop in my stomach. My heart was beating faster. It felt like I was lighter. Like my feet were barely putting any weight down on the deck's surface. Like the boat was about to fall away and leave me behind floating by myself in the dark. No, I reconfirmed, though I wasn't sure what I really believed. It could have been my imagination. I didn't want to accept the fact that we were falling. Falling into what? No, I said a third time. We aren't falling. It's just dark. It's messing with your senses. We looked off in the same direction, first towards where the horizon would have been, then down where the water should have been, then up at the starless sky. We had nowhere to go. I was unsure if the motor would work or if the sails would be any use. There was no wind, and I was sure there was no water. We were sailing on an ocean of emptiness. 
What came next was something I'd never experienced before, so I may have trouble explaining. That feeling that we were falling was gone. It had been replaced by a feeling that we were upside down. I really don't know how to describe it. At first, we were upright, not falling anymore. But then we were turning, no, flipping. It felt like the whole boat was capsizing, turning over very slowly. It kept turning over and then stopped once I felt like we were perfectly upside down. It was still completely dark. There had been no change in scenery to indicate we had turned upside down. Nothing on the boat shifted at all. It was just a feeling. Like in outer space, there's no real up or down, but I'm sure an astronaut would be able to feel if they'd been turned upside down. And I could tell Sam felt it too. He turned to meet me with eyes wider than I'd ever seen him. We didn't say a word to each other. Our locked eye contact was broken by light above us. It slowly appeared, but it was obvious that it was the stars. It was the stars and moon in the sky once again. Oh, thank Christ, I said. But as Sam and I looked upward, I realized we weren't actually looking at the sky. We were looking at a reflection of the sky. It had a slow, rhythmic motion, refracting the light in a strange way. Then I realized we were looking at water. I looked overboard and saw that beneath us was the night sky, beautiful and bright now, unmoving, and above us was the ocean, daunting and dark, but reflecting every star off its surface. We were upside down, or we were still upright and everything else had flipped. I turned to Sam, whose expression matched my own, one of shock and confusion, but the word confusion doesn't do the situation justice. It was beyond my ability of comprehending something as a human. He looked to me. His expression had turned to sorrow. He looked like he was about to burst into tears that second. Help, he whimpered. And with that one word, I watched my friend fly upward, flail and scream for ten agonizing seconds, then splash into the dark ocean above my head. He fell, I thought. He fell. He fell up or down into the sea. But I didn't fall. I looked up now at the rough waves and waited for my fate to be sealed. But nothing happened. Not yet. I ran into the cabin and began typing this out. I had come to the conclusion that I was going to die, somehow, and soon. I wanted my experience to be written out for someone to read, so someone knew what happened to me. I got about halfway through it before I heard the noise. It was a long, slow, loud, and deep rumble. It almost felt like a light earthquake. It got slowly louder until I couldn't ignore the fact that something was happening. I peeked outside the cabin door, cautious not to go all the way outside. I looked up at the ocean, where I deduced the sound was coming from. The waves were bigger now, rougher too. Those black monsters would crash into one another and produce a light shower of white water. That's when I noticed. It's closer. It was, indeed. The water was maybe a thousand feet above the boat when I first noticed it. Now it was more like 250, and that distance was decreasing fast. I stared at it, stuck in a panic of confusion and fright. It was falling on me, or I was falling into it. 
and it was happening rapidly. I ran into the cabin again for shelter, knowing it would be of little help. Seconds after I secured the cabin door, the ocean fell onto me, or I fell into it. The surface of the water crashed down hard onto the ship's deck and quickly began flooding the cabin. I think the boat was fully submerged underwater, for a second at least. I felt the pull from it as it brought itself back to the surface, trying to float. And I don't know how or why, but I knew I was upright after that. I'm not sure if the boat flipped itself or maybe a wave helped flip it over. It all happened so fast, I don't know. But I knew I was upright then, floating in the ocean. I got beat up pretty bad. Whiplash, bruises, a couple cuts, maybe a concussion. My boat got beat up worse, though. There's about a foot of standing water on the deck. The engine is completely wrecked, possibly beyond repair. The sails were torn to shreds from the impact of the water. But I'm floating, upright. That's good. But I'm floating, wandering with no control over my direction. That's bad. And that's where I am now. I'm not sure what happened or where we went wrong. I'm not sure if I'll ever make it home. I'm not sure if anyone will ever actually read this. My GPS isn't working anymore. God knows where I am. I'm just hoping this internet thing Sam set up still works. God rest his soul. All I can do now is send up a couple flares and hope someone rescues me. I just want to go home. It's still so dark. That concludes this episode of Curseland. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show or any other feedback, please email feedback at curse.land. This show is also on Twitter at Curseland, so you can message me on there if you'd prefer. Till next time, I'll talk to you all later. <laughs>